Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 until 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and truly there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after it. And we'll finish our reading there. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll work through this passage. God, we want to thank you for our service thus far, and we want to thank you that as we meet here, that your Spirit is with us, that he is in everyone who names the name of Christ. And we thank you that he is our helper, the one who ultimately points us to Jesus. So Father, as we approach this new book, a difficult book, a hard book to read and a hard book to preach, we humbly confess that we are entirely in need of you. So we ask, O oh God, that you would give us the minds to comprehend the truth that's revealed in your word and ultimately, Father, point us to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, hands up if you remembered your dream from last night. Okay, girl at the back, Johanna, some other people do it. Hands up if you've ever remembered a dream. Okay, there are some people without their hands up, but scientists tell us that everyone dreams, and I'm sure whether or not you're, you're, you're put on the spot now, but all of us, at least in our life, have remembered one dream I trust. And I'm sure that all of us at one point in our lives have also had a great dream, a really riveting dream, a dream that you never want to end. Maybe it was a dream about your favorite place, uh, with your favorite people, doing your favorite things. Perhaps it was a place in, let's say, France, at the beach, drinking coffee and people watching at the shore. It was so riveting while you were there and you really felt it was real life. Or maybe for some of us, it could have been a dream about playing your favorite sport again. You've got a little bit older, or you have an injury, and you just wish you could do it again. And, and one night in your dream, you're thinking so much about it that it's so real. 
Or maybe people talk about cheese dreams. Eat a lot of cheese, get a couple of nightmares, and I say, hey, what has happened last night? Or my favorite, happened to me this week, a dramatic dream, like saving your family from a burning building. And you're the hero of the dream. And yet in all of those dreams, there comes a point that we begin to hear a faint noise. And a buzz begins to grow. And it gets louder and it gets louder until, bang, you're snapped back into reality from your dream by your alarm clock. And the day goes on and you remember it for the first 10 minutes and that's it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, that's precisely what the Bible does sometimes to us. The Bible sometimes snaps us out of our dream version of the world and ourselves by presenting reality to us. And I think this clearly happens when we read the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the writer, known as the preacher, goes on a journey to find satisfaction, to find meaning in life. And on his journey, he records his honest and his brutal thoughts about the things we so often dream about. Things like great wisdom, things like unrestricted pleasure, things like like great wealth from our work. These are the things we dream about. These are the things we long about. And the author of Ecclesiastes has all of these things and he presents to us the reality about our dreams. He describes the brokenness and he describes the ugliness of life in a fallen world. As well as that, he he often repeats the theme of death. That death comes to all, to the rich and to the poor and to the young and to the old. Death is certain and we cannot escape it. As I've already said, some may even wonder if this really is a Christian book, a book in the Bible, because of some of the statements made in it. And in the end, the preacher realizes that nothing in this world can satisfy us. Only God can satisfy us. And so over the next two months, we're going to consider several sections from the book of Ecclesiastes, which I pray will awaken us to the reality of life in a fallen world. And today, as I begin this series, I want, to, uh, I, I, I want us to meet the preacher for the very first time. And we will consider his profile in verse 1, his motto in verse 2, and his opening question in verses 3 to 11. So that's where we're going. The preacher's profile, the preacher's motto, and the preacher's question. So let's begin by looking at, firstly, the preacher's profile in verse 1. Now, I'm sure all of us have at least one, or have had at least one, social media, uh, social media profile in our lives. And your social media profile provides a window into your life. It tells your story and gives the necessary information that helps someone to decide whether or not to follow you, whether or not to connect with you, and whether or not even to meet you in person. And in the opening verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, we are presented with the writer's profile, a short sentence which helps us decide whether or not we should carry on reading. Have a look at verse 1 with me. The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
the writer of Ecclesiastes is introduced as the preacher. Perhaps in your translation, you read the word the teacher or the, or, or the spokesperson because the original term describes someone who addressed an assembled group of people. This preacher is defined as, as the son of David. And if you have any biblical knowledge, you say, which one? Because First Chronicles chapter 3 gives us the names of 19 of David's sons, not to mention the ones that he had with concubines. So which one wrote Ecclesiastes, we ask? Well, this son was king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, the preacher is more specific and says that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And apart from King David himself, only King Solomon, David's son, reigned over Israel in Jerusalem because after King Solomon's death, Israel was divided into the southern kingdom and into the northern kingdom. So it was only David and it was only Solomon who was king in Jerusalem over Israel. It appears then that King Solomon is this preacher. Now, many people do disagree with this conclusion, and it's not the time or the place to go into all the reasons for that. But I personally think that Solomon best fits the profile of the preacher presented in verse 1 and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes. Take, for example, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. The preacher uh, there notes how he had unparalleled wisdom. And what's the one thing King Solomon is known for? It's his wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1.16 says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Then in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 6, 7, and 8, the preacher describes his, his abundant riches and his, his many concubines, something that was true of King Solomon too. He writes, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And then again at the end of the book in chapter 12 and verse 9, we read that the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And Proverbs chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. So for what it's worth, I think that King Solomon best fits the profile of this preacher. Now, you may be asking, Alex, why is this preacher's profile relevant? Why is it important? Well, it's because his profile provides his credentials, which encourage us to keep on reading. You see, sometimes in life, people, I I would argue at times, wrongly dismiss our opinions because we haven't experienced what they are experiencing. Well, here's a man... Solomon, if you like, who has experienced everything that this world has to offer. His profile tells us that nothing was of limits for him. Solomon had money to get what he wanted. 
He had many beautiful women around him. He was famous and he was powerful. Ecclesiastes then is the diary of someone who indulged in whatever he desired. He later says in the book, whatever my eyes desired, I kept nothing from them. Just think why today we read popular biographies or or watch Netflix documentaries about celebrities. It's because we, we, we want to see a life into their life, a life of fame and of power and of riches, to see if we're missing anything, to see if there's more to life. So people, when Prince Harry released his biography, flocked to get it, to find out what life was really like growing up in a royal household. Or on Netflix, when it was first released, The Last Dance, we we all tune in to Michael Jordan's documentary to see how this guy rose from, from, from school and into popularity and into basketball and into fame where he's, he's known potentially as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. We're, we're seeking after whether or not our life, is there something more? The things that we dream about. And Ecclesiastes tells us all about it. Because unlike Michael Jordan and Prince Harry, nothing was off limits for King Solomon. Nothing was off limits for the preacher. So it's a diary which all of us, no matter our spiritual state this morning, would do well to read and to pay close attention to. Let's not forget, however, that we also read Ecclesiastes because we know that these are the words of Almighty God. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 that all Scripture, not just parts of it, but that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Ecclesiastes then is a relevant read because it is the word of God to us. Yes, an ancient word, but it has a contemporary word for us. And that's what verse 1, I believe, uh, teaches us about the preacher. Meet the preacher. Look at his profile. Here's a window into why you should keep reading. And I trust the, 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 the case has been built for us to continue reading and to continue studying and try to find out what this man learnt from all that he had Secondly, notice the preacher's motto in verse 2. The preacher's motto in verse 2. What is the meaning of life? And some of you are like, is this a rhetorical question? Is it not? Well, you're going to see that throughout Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to pause a long time make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it's, it's to think about it, not just hope that, oh yeah, I think about this later, but think about it now. What is the meaning of life? And this question comes to everyone. It comes to the anxious student during their exam season. What if I fail? I don't understand this. Is it really worth it going to university? comes to the exhausted mum after another day of tantrums, another day of changing nappies, another day of just being stuck in the house with nothing else to do apart from look after the children. 
It comes to the middle-aged man driving home from the office. Life's been going great. And just recently, it's getting hard. And in the car, he's stuck in traffic, maybe in Frankfurt, maybe in the Autobahn, I don't know, but it just hits him. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? What is the meaning of life? Comes to the elderly person at another funeral of yet another friend. And it even comes, it even comes to the celebrity, the rich celebrity, after receiving yet another award. Why am I here? Is this all that life has to offer? What will truly satisfy me? You may even be asking these questions right now. Because some of you are young. Some of you are middle-aged. Some of you are a little bit older. You may be asking these questions right now. Well, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher describes his search for meaning and for fulfillment in life. Remember, his search is a unique search because it's a search where nothing is off limits for the preacher. And as we work through the book uh, over the next two months, you will realize that King Solomon doesn't sugarcoat his thoughts. Rather, he presents the honest and at times hard truth. The plain truth about his search for meaning in wisdom and then in pleasure and then in, in, in work and in money. He observes the rich and the poor, the wise and the fool, the young and the old. He examines everything to find out what will bring ultimate satisfaction in life. And in verse 2, in case you don't want to read on, Solomon gives us the conclusion of his journey from the get-go. Have a look at it with me. He writes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Imagine Samurai started our sermons every week with that. Wouldn't be great. And yet there are preachers and teachers out there who says that God only wants your wealth and your best life now. And Solomon says, life is vanity. And the word translated here as vanity is it's a key word in Ecclesiastes occurring over 30 times, to be precise, I think 38 times in the book. Literally the word means a breath or, or, or a vapor. Smoke is translated as futility in the New American Standard Bible and as meaningless in the New International Version. And the preacher's motto is that everything in this world is like a puff of smoke. It rises for a moment and then it disappears. It's passing, therefore it's pointless. Life is short. Life is out of control. We can't manipulate it however we want. Solomon concludes that that our world only offers empty pleasures from which nothing is gained. It's a striving, a running after the winds, and we're never going to catch up. There's no significance in life, and there's no lasting satisfaction in anything that this world offers. And this is the preacher's conclusion following his journey. It's his motto. And I see your visas. It makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
That's not the answer we wanted, is it? And you're praying, oh Lord, get Alex to move on to, to the cross and get him to our new life in Christ. But we need to resist that temptation to move on when we're uncomfortable in the wisdom books. Because we need to think about the preacher's honest motto and why he reached such a drastic conclusion about life. Notice the preacher's motto isn't simply vanity. Rather, he says vanity of vanities. This construction is used several times in scripture. Holy of holies, same construction. It describes the most holy place. It's a superlative to express the highest degree possible. And in the same way, the preacher says vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He's expressing uh, uh, the the futility of life in the highest degree. And according to Solomon, life is utterly vain. Because we live in a world which is repetitive, a world which is unsatisfying, and even a world that at times is absurd. Truly, all is vanity. And as you read Ecclesiastes, I encourage you even to do it this afternoon. 30 minutes it should take you. Listen to an audio Bible. It's quick. While you're making dinner, listen through the book. And throughout Ecclesiastes, another phrase occurs almost the same number of times as that term, vanity. It's the phrase, under the sun, introduced in verse 3. Life under the sun refers to life in the present evil age. It's a phrase that describes life now in a fallen world. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans 8, verse 20. Romans 8, verse 20, he, he uses the same word for vanity as used in the Greek version of Ecclesiastes. And Paul describes in Romans eight twenty how the creation was subjected to futility, same word, or to vanity, because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Vanity then is the result of the fall. So the phrase under the sun refers to life now. Life which is after the Garden of Eden, but life which is before Eden restored. So we're stuck in the middle. After the Garden of Eden where everything's perfect and before Eden restored when all things will be made new and under the sun describes right now the life that you and I are living in. It's life in a fallen world. And it's this life that the preacher describes as vanity. Have a look at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 14. I think it's, it should be on the board behind me. King Solomon says, Yeah, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And then he says, okay, where? And behold, all is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So he tells us what he's talking about under the sun, life right now, life in a fallen world, and this is which is vanity. Life under the sun is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. This is the life that Solomon mainly describes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Yet it's not his ultimate, ultimate conclusion. It's his conclusion, 
It's his conclusion under the sun after his intense search, but it's not his ultimate conclusion because the preacher's ultimate conclusion isn't focused on life under the sun. Rather, it's focused on life with God. And at times in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon calls on people to fear the Almighty and the Sovereign God. And then at the end of the book, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, Solomon writes these words, Having heard everything, I have reached this conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. On the screen behind me, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And what the preacher is doing through his motto, through his summary, through his belief system, is he is awaking us to the reality of life in a fallen world. And, he, and it's, it's through this motto that he reveals our need to trust our creator as our savior. He is saying we are to worship and trust now uh, God now, before Eden is restored. In life after Eden, and before Eden is restored, what are we to do? Simply to trust God. And this is, this is an occurring theme in the wisdom books. They never give us the answers to the heartaches, and to the brokenness, and to the ugliness. They never say it's going to be easy. They don't say, uh, and, and promise a good life now. No. They're real. They're hard. At times we don't even want to read them. And yet they're honest. And they say, even in the midst of life under the sun right now, in the midst of this fallen world with its ugliness and its brokenness and its death, the only thing that can truly satisfy is making our creator our savior. And that, my friends, is the meaning of life. We were created as image bearers of God. We are still image bearers of God today. And that means that we were created with the, with the ability to enjoy a loving relationship with our creator through his son, Jesus Christ. There's more to life under the sun and it's found in a relationship with the only one who can satisfy us, almighty God, our creator. And the question we must all answer is this. Are you spending life under the sun with God or without God? Because with God, there is hope. And without God, life is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So the preacher's profile, verse 1. The preacher's motto, verse 2, and let's then take verses 3 to 11, and thirdly and finally, as the preacher's question. I've already mentioned how in the wisdom books we must let questions be questions. I struggle with this. Any awkward silence, ask my wife. I hate it. I jump in. Got told off the other day because it was 10 seconds awkward silence. Felt like me, two minutes. So I wanted to jump in. But not in the wisdom books. We must let questions be questions. And when we come to a question, we should stop and think about it. We should chew it over in our mind. And often in Ecclesiastes, the question provides the dominant point of the section. 
And that's true in verses 3 to 11. A question is asked in verse 3, and its answer is, is, is poetically explored in verses 4 to 11. And the question and the answer further illustrate how life is passing and pointless like smoke, as mentioned in verse 2. Look at the question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toiled under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toiled under the sun? We live in Frankfurt, don't we? Frankfurt is a, is a place where people work hard. It's busy. It's international. Hard workers all around us. So the preacher's question immediately connects with us because it's about hard work. It's about physical labor with its associated mental and emotional struggles. Some of you work hard in the car industry and some of you work hard in, in the finance sector. Some of you work hard as as stay-at-home moms and, and others work hard traveling around the world for your company. Some of you work hard in the library as you, as you revise for your exams and others work hard in the office as you prepare papers to present to your government. All of us work hard. So Solomon's question comes to us. And Solomon's question demands an answer from all of us. What do we gain? What do you gain by all the work you do in this life? If you're brave enough, you answer me. Some people will say, we work hard to bring lasting change. Elon Musk, we all know him, don't we? He once said in an interview, I'm interested in things that change the world or affect the future. He believes that his hard work will, will pay off because it will change the world forever. It will make generations after him look back and remember him and be in a better position now. Don't even need to go to work. Think about, th- think about the, the push in the, in, the, in, the, in the climate change area. People protesting. Why are they doing that? To save the generation after us. We want to change the world now to change the better future for the world after us. Many people are like this. Are you? Do you work and work and work and work because you think that you will break the mold and that through your work you will bring lasting change? And even as Christians in a church, we can think that it's our job to change our friends and we can become so burdened by saying we're going to change the city and we're going to transform it and everything's going to happen by us. And the preacher, well, he thought long and hard about this and he concluded that nothing we ever do in this world will ever bring lasting change. In verses four to seven, he compares the repetitive cycle of nature to human endeavor. In verse four, he talks about generations. He says it appears things change when a generation dies and a new generation comes to replace it. Die and and, and, and birth death and birth there's 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 continual change surely in nature but in fact he says verse four the earth remains forever it's business as usual the cycle never changes people die and people are born people die and people are born people die and people are born it's monotonous it's repetitive it's the cycle of life 
In verse 5, the preacher stands back and looks at the sun. This is what you'll see in Ecclesiastes, observations all the time. He looks at the sun which rises in the east and sets in the west. And at the end of every day, it returns panting to the place where it rises. Like a runner on the same track or on the treadmill at night, the sun runs the same course every day, day after day after day after day without any change. Same is true of the wind. We often think the wind is free. And I was like, there's got to be a song lyric for this. And there is. I can't remember the guy, but it's like, uh, free as the wind, free as the wind. That's what the way it should be. We should be free as the wind. But the preacher says, if you observe the wind long enough, in verse 6, it's not free. The wind isn't free. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, it returns. Because there's no fundamental change to its cycle. The wind is like a hamster on the wheel, going round and round and round and round, day after day. And then there's the rivers. In verse 7, again, the cycle's repetitive. It makes no progress. The rivers run to the sea, but they never fill it up. Some translations, which I would disagree on, take it as if it's the the water cycle, evaporation up and then rain and, and comes down. No, it's more about the futility of the work. No matter how much the river and the water tries to fill the sea, it's never going to make a difference. The cycle continues. Nothing ultimately changes. And Solomon's point is this, it's hard, it's real. No matter how hard we work, we will never produce lasting change. Life simply repeats itself day after day, year after year, generation after generation, around and around and around it goes. It is futile then to work endless hours to try to achieve something that even creation itself can't achieve and some of you are like ah I wouldn't really say that instead I work hard to be satisfied and some people work hard to be satisfied people work hard to to get more money and more power because they think that these things will satisfy them so they leave their family week after week to travel the world on amazing business trips and to see the world because they want to climb the corporate ladder because they think that these things will satisfy them when they finally reach it to that desk, to that chair, to that position. Does this describe you this morning? Do you look to your job for meaning and fulfillment, for ultimate satisfaction? Well, look at what the preacher says. The one who had it all. And we'll return to this theme over and over again throughout the book. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says that hard work never satisfies because the eye is never satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. The more we see, the more we want to see. The more we have, the more we want to have. The more we learn by hearing, the more we want to learn. We are never content. We are never satisfied by work, by money, or by power. It is futile then, vanity, to work endless hours to try and get to something that can never, ever satisfy us. You say, hey, I'm a student. I'm all about novelty. I work hard to create something new. 
I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to invent something that's never been invented. I'm going to write a paper that no one's ever thought about before. And they, we, we are guilty of making, uh, we, we're guilty of thinking that we're going to make a difference. Is your life driven by, by the pursuit of novelty? Well, Solomon speaks to you. And again, I, I say you for the personal reference, but hey, I'm challenged by working through these things. Let me just give you an example. I'm right, I just completed my master's thesis and, and obviously you have to have a little bit of originality. And I was like, hey, Mary, this is great. This is great. I'm going to write a PhD in this. This is great. This is great. I'm going to change the world. Create something new and new and new. And then I come here, I'm like, there's nothing new. There's nothing new under sun. And Solomon says in verses 9 to 10 that there's nothing truly new under the sun. Everything has occurred before in some way and will occur afterwards in another way. Now, King Solomon, he's not denying human creativity. Rather, he is simply observing that all our inventions are a different expression of something which has already happened before. So it's a different expression, but fundamentally it's the same. Space exploration, for example, is fundamentally the same because we've all explored something in the past. Once it was in ships, then it was in horses, and the core truth is the same. Yes, it's, to, uh, it's with different means, but there's a start, and there's a finish, and there's a goal. Exploration is exploration. What about the internet? Revolutionized the world. It's, it's great, and it's wonderful. Without it, many of us would struggle and yet it's simply a means of communication. A communication means which has existed before. People used to write letters. And before that, people used to talk to one another. It's communication. Or the same is true as fashion. What was fashionable a hundred years ago is fashionable again today. I used to wear skinny jeans until I met Mary. She didn't like them. And now I came here and I was like, I look really big in these jeans. <laughs> But yeah, that's the style, isn't it? Because one time it's skinny, and next thing it's flared, and next thing it's short, sh- short jeans. Uh, where's Gary? Shorts, according to Jerry. Uh, sh- I can't remember. Ask him for the name anyway. There's a name of them. But styles come, and they go, and they come, and they go. What Solomon is saying is that there's nothing new under the sun. And I can spend time in this. It's the same with thoughts and beliefs. We think the, 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 the revolution that's going on in our world in thoughts and about marriage and gender, etc. is new. But it's not. It's just Gnosticism in a new area. These things just come and they go. Yes, they take on different expressions. Yes, they look a little bit different. They appear a little bit different. But fundamentally, there is nothing new under the sun. So Solomon says it is futile, vanity, to work endless hours to try to create something truly new. And finally, I may not say anything about you, but maybe this is it. I work hard to be remembered. People work hard to build something or to do something that will make them famous. They want to write their names in the history books. It's true in sports as much as it is in the church. We all want to be remembered and we all want to be missed. Don't we? Have a look at what Solomon says in verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things or people, nor will there be any remembrance of later things or people yet to be among those 
who come after. Now I'm going to try an experiment, and it could go well or it couldn't go well. Does anyone know who Carl Linnaeus was? Okay, there's one person. I was hoping nobody, but there's one person. That's good. But Carl Linnaeus, I don't know anything about him, but he's, on, he's number 31 on the Times list of the most 100 significant figures in history. And apart from one person, and I was hoping none, but apart from one person, none of us know who number 31 on the Times 100 most significant people in history was. Who was Carl Linnaeus? I still can't tell you. Listen to what the actress Cameron Diaz said about fame. She's not a Christian. To my understanding, she's open for all religions and takes whatever she wants. And she says this, if you're looking for fame to define you, then you will never be happy. You will always be searching for happiness. You will never find it in fame. And this is from one of the most famous actresses in the world. It's a humbling truth. We are here today and tomorrow we'll be forgotten. It is futile then to work endless hours to try to be remembered. And through his question, the preacher has, has snapped us out of dreamland and brought us back to reality. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toiled under the sun? We've looked at four possible and plausible answers only to realize that we gain nothing under the sun. We gain nothing by our hard work in this life. We don't change anything, nor do we create anything new. We aren't satisfied, nor will we be remembered. We have nothing to show for our hard work. Truly, life under the sun is vanity. It's miserable. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And this was the same conclusion of another son of David. Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, who asked a similar question in Mark eight thirty six. Jesus asked, and it's, it's familiar to many of us, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? In other words, what good is it for you to get everything you ever wanted in this life only to die in the end like everyone else and to spend your eternity absent from the love of God. And in his question, Jesus is pointing us to life after life under the sun. A life where all things will be made new because of all that Jesus has done. The only truly new thing to ever happen in our world was that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That the God-man died on the cross for the sins of the people. The lovable for the loveless. The uh, creator for the created. The only truly new thing to happen in our world was that Jesus broke the cycle of death by rising again from the dead to never die again. 
And the Bible tells us that if we confess that we are sinners living in a sin-stricken world under the sun, and if we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we will be made new. You see, the moment that you follow Jesus, you will experience a permanent change. A change from condemned by God's righteous wrath because of your sin to forgiven and declared righteous and accepted into the triune beloved. In Christ, you will be eternally satisfied because our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. That moment that you follow Jesus, you will experience newness, a new birth. You will no longer be dead in your sins and in your trespasses. Rather, you will be alive to God from death to life. And in Christ, you will be remembered forever. Not by any of us, but by the one who it matters. You will be known and you will be loved forever and ever by your creator. And it is only because of the resurrection of Jesus that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so as we draw to a close, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, calls upon us to wake up, to snap out of the dream and wake up to the reality of our sin, of our sin-stricken world under the sun and to accept Jesus as your saviour and Lord. Because to be with him in the next life, in Eden restored, you must belong to him in this life. Live life under the sun with the hope of eternal life with God. So we've met the preacher today. My closing question is this. Have you met the Savior? Have you met the Savior? And if not, I would love to talk to you at the end. But let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for hearing our prayers throughout this service and for hearing our prayers even at the beginning of this teaching time as we ask for wisdom to understand your word. And Lord, we, we come away feeling as if we have understood just a little bit of what Ecclesiastes 1 is teaching us. And Father, we want to thank you again as, as Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus that all things in scripture ultimately point to him And Lord, we ask that your spirit today would interpret into us, Lord, and help us to see the connections between this preacher, between King Solomon, and ultimately to the one who is greater than Solomon. And Lord, as we leave knowing more about the preacher, as we have met the preacher, may we leave knowing more and more about the Savior. And Father, again, for those who haven't met him for the first time, we ask that by your spirit, O God, that you would bring about lasting change in their life today, that you would bring about satisfaction in their life, that you would give them newness, and that, Father, you will help them to know that they can be loved and remembered forever by you. And we ask, O God, that you may grant them faith to see their need for a savior and faith to take hold of him and to trust him today. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. We're going to stand and respond in song.